It's good to be with you again at the beginning of a new week, sharing with you keys to successful living, which God has placed in my hand through many years of personal experience and Christian ministry. My theme for this week is the first church. In our cities today, we're used to seeing signs which say the first Baptist church or the first Presbyterian church or the first Assembly of God church. But I'm not talking about the first church in that sense. I'm talking about the first church without any other qualification, not even the first Protestant church or the first Catholic church, but the first church before there was anything but the first church, the church of the New Testament, the church that's described in the book of Acts. Right at the beginning, let me establish an important principle. When God initiates something, he does it right first time. For an example, let's look at the ark that was built by Noah. The materials, the dimensions, the method of construction, all were directed by God and all were right first time. The ark never needed a trial run. It was never recalled for modification. It did all it was designed to do. It succeeded first time. In many ways, the ark was a preview of the church. Each was the only place where God offered salvation. Each had to be built. Each was built by a carpenter. Noah was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. But the ark was built of timber. The church is built of living men and women. The first church, the church described in the New Testament and primarily in the book of Acts, remains our God-given standard or pattern. It was never superseded. It was never modified. Just like the ark, it was right first time. So let's ask ourselves, what was it like? How could we identify it? How would we look for it if we were searching for it today? Well, let me give you a very simple sort of down-to-earth example. It so happens that I spent five years of my life in Kenya in East Africa, the country where, in relative proportion to the area of the country, I suppose there are more elephants than anywhere else in the world. So let me give, as an example, the task of describing an elephant to somebody so that that person can recognize an elephant when he sees one. We wouldn't have to give a scientific analysis. We just have to give some main distinctive features. For instance, in regard to an elephant, I would pick out probably four distinctive features. A trunk at the end of its nose, if I may put it that way. Then ivory tusks on either side of the trunk. Those are very characteristic because no other animal has them the same way. Then very large flappy ears. And fourth, a relatively small tail at the other end. Now that's not a scientific analysis, but it's sufficient to identify an elephant. In my talks this week, I'll do something analogous in relation to the first church. I'll point out four conspicuous features which serve to identify it. 
the first distinctive feature that I want to focus on in my talk today is that the early church was a church of people who were witnesses to all men. That was something very primary, very distinctive about them. We may go back to start with to the last words of Jesus on earth. In a sense, those were the words with which he gave the ark a push and set it out to sail. The last words he spoke to his disciples on earth are recorded in Acts 1.8. He said to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. One thing we need to notice, first of all, is that the church had a source of supernatural power. And this power was needed to make them effective witnesses. And that was their first assignment, to be witnesses. And this was the basic program for spreading the gospel through the earth. Christians were to be witnesses. We need to understand what a witness is. A witness is not necessarily a preacher. A preacher expounds general truth. But a witness speaks from personal experience of something that's actually happened to him. Now, not all Christians are called to be preachers, but I do believe all Christians are expected to be witnesses. We're expected to have a personal experience that we can talk about and tell others about. And this is how Jesus ordained that the gospel should be spread. One person talking out of a personal experience to another until the testimony had extended to the ends of the earth. Particularly, the primary responsibility of the apostles was to be witnesses, not preachers, and first and foremost, witnesses of one great historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to what the writer of Acts says in Acts 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. Notice it was the apostles speaking out of first-hand experience. They'd been eyewitnesses of what they were talking about, and above all, they were talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that they took their assignment so seriously that no threats could silence their witness. Later on, the religious leaders in Jerusalem summoned them and said, we told you never to speak anymore in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. This is how Peter, on behalf of the apostles, answered. In Acts 5, 29 through verse 32, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to be to his own right hand, as Prince and Saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice, the apostles' first assignment was to be witnesses, to speak out of personal experience what they had seen and heard, and above all, to bear witness that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And then they said, as we bear witness, the Holy Spirit also supernaturally bears witness to our witness. But the whole emphasis is on the word witness. What was true of the first 12 apostles was equally true of the apostle Paul, who of course came later to a knowledge of Jesus through a revelation on the Damascus Road.
Much later in his life, Paul was on trial for his faith in Jesus Christ. And in Acts 26, verses 22 and 23, we read his testimony in the court. And I use the word testimony advisedly. It was testimony in a spiritual sense. It was also testimony in a legal sense. This is what he says. And so, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying or witnessing both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Notice, Paul's first responsibility was to be a witness, and he was a witness to everybody, small and great. Their social position made no difference. He bore testimony to what the Scriptures said. He says the prophets and Moses. And he bore testimony to what the Scriptures said, particularly in regard to Jesus Christ and particularly in regard to his resurrection. That's the theme all the way through. Witnesses to the truth of the Scripture concerning Jesus Christ and particularly concerning his resurrection. Now, in closing, I just want to point out to you the amazing impact of the combined testimony of the early Christians on the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the strongest empire that was known in the earth in that day. And in a sense, it took a stand against the early church. And yet the impact of the witnesses of the early Christians brought the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor to his knees within less than three centuries the Roman emperor himself bowed his knees at the name of a Jew who'd been crucified by a Roman governor. And I want you, in closing, to picture the impact of this witness on the Roman Empire. People from different races, cultures, social levels, occupations, Jews, Greeks, barbarians, nobles, rulers, officials in Caesar's household, slaves, merchants, soldiers, scholars, men, women, and even children, all with one simple testimony, Jesus Christ is alive. I know I've experienced him in my own life. You see, that's the thing that everybody has a right to know, that the man who hung on a cross and died rose from the dead. He is alive today. That's our responsibility, to be his witnesses. There's a hymn that closes with these words. May the book of life never close till the whole world knows he arose. That was the spirit of the early church. In my introductory talk yesterday, I compared the first church to the ark built by Noah. Each was the only place of salvation in its day. Each had to be built. Each was built by a carpenter. The first carpenter was Noah. The carpenter who built the second church was Jesus. And each was absolutely right first time. It never had to be recalled for modification. It never needed a trial run. It was right when God set it in being. I also used the analogy of describing an elephant as, as a way of indicating how we can look at some identifying marks of the first church. I said, if we want to tell somebody how to recognize an elephant, we might single out four conspicuous features. First, the trunk. Second, the tusks. Third, the large ears. And fourth, the small tail. That's not a scientific analysis, but it's sufficient to identify an elephant. 
In my talks this week, I'm doing something analogous in relation to the first church. I'm pointing out four conspicuous features which serve to identify it. The first such feature which I dealt with yesterday was witnesses to all men. The early Christians in the first church were witnesses to all men. They were not all preachers, but they were witnesses. They spoke from personal experience of what had happened in their lives, particularly in relationship to Jesus, the Scriptures, and the resurrection of Jesus. Today I'm going to speak about the second distinctive feature, which I call supernatural power. This supernatural power was manifested really in every area of the life of the first church. But I will pick out, by way of illustration, four main areas. Their praying, their preaching, the way they were directed, and the way their message was attested. I could also add a fifth area, which was that even their transportation at times was supernatural. For this second feature of supernatural power, we can return to the same scripture which was our starting point also for the first feature that was witnessing. Acts 1.8, where Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we see that he set them out in motion, as it were, with supernatural power. He didn't permit them to go out and to start serving him or even witnessing until they'd received this supernatural power. And after that, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit was really manifested in every area of their lives. Let's consider, first of all, the praying of the early church, bearing in mind that prayer is the generator of a church. Prayer is where the power is generated that is needed to keep all the operations going. A church that has no prayer life has no generator. It may have a lot of functions, but there's nothing to make the functions work, to make them effective. Let's look at how this prayer generator operated in the early church. We need to go back to the first chapter of Acts and read what the early Christians, disciples of Jesus, did before the day of Pentecost. It says in Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And then in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, the description of the events on the day of Pentecost, we have the outcome of this praying, what it led to. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We see that the coming of the Holy Spirit released a completely new and supernatural form of utterance and of praying praying in an unknown tongue. And this was kind of, in a sense, the way in which the church was first manifested and first came into full-scale operation on the earth. And a little later they ran into opposition and had to go back to prayer again. And this is how it's described in Acts 4:31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice again a supernatural release of power, the power of the Holy Spirit through their prayer that actually shook the physical building where they were gathered. You might wonder whether that kind of thing can happen today, but I want to tell you from personal experience, I know that it can. It's not gone out of date. And then let's look at the account of their preaching. And we look here at what Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 12. He's speaking about the truth that was revealed to the prophets of the Old Testament and how this truth was not fulfilled in them, but only in the church and the believers in Jesus. And this is what he says, 1 Peter 1.12, It was revealed to them, that's the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So Peter says that the preaching of the gospel to the early Christians was by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. The preaching of these first preachers was not simply a matter of eloquence or of learning or of reasoning or of argument or even of choosing the right illustrations or having good sermon outlines. There was a totally supernatural element to it. It was by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. And the results were so exciting that the Apostle Peter says even angels longed to look into that. And then we can look at the testimony of Paul about his own preaching as he gives it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Notice Paul did not rely on philosophy or argument or theology, but he relied on demonstrating in a form that could be sensibly perceived the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did that because he wanted the faith of the believers not to be founded on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So all through there's this theme of supernatural power. Another aspect of the supernatural power in the early church was the way in which they were led or directed. This is summed up by Paul in Romans 8:14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. They did not depend on purely human planning, but they depended on the supernatural leading of the Holy Spirit. This is brought out clearly in the account in Acts chapter 16 of Paul's second journey with the gospel. Verses 6 through 10, we read how the Holy Spirit stopped them going to some places, directed them to other places they would not otherwise have gone to. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. The Holy Spirit said, don't go and preach in Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, another area, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Again, the Holy Spirit said no. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We see their direction was on a supernatural level. The Holy Spirit stopped them going some directions supernaturally by a vision in the night directed them to go the place he wanted them to be which was not on their original plan at all 
which was Macedonia. Now let's look at the supernatural attestation that they enjoyed. Mark 16, verse 20, says this, Then the disciples went out. That was after Jesus had been taken up to heaven. They went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. They did not rely merely on their eloquence or their arguments, but there was a supernatural attestation to their message. And this is expressed again by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. One great reason why the gospel made such an impact was that God himself bore supernatural testimony to its truth. And then let's look for a moment even at this case of supernatural transportation. In Acts 8, Philip had baptized the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza, and as they come up out of the water, something miraculous happened. Acts 8, verses 39 and 40. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip just disappeared. And then it says, but Philip found himself at Azotus. I like that translation. Philip found himself. He opened his eyes, and there he was, many miles away. You say, well, could that happen today? Yes, I have a friend, a minister of mine, a godly, respected man. He came out of a meeting in a big city, and he was due at that very time to be at another meeting. He knew he was going to be late. There was a tremendous traffic jam. He didn't know how he was going to get to the other meeting, so outside the first meeting, he paused on the sidewalk, bowed his head, closed his eyes, and prayed. And when he opened his eyes, he was outside the church where he had to speak next. I've said that in the first church, as described in the New Testament and primarily in the book of Acts, God set a standard and a pattern from which he has never departed. In my previous talks, I've pointed out certain distinctive features which were characteristic of that first church. The first one I pointed out was that the early believers were all witnesses to all men. They all spoke out of direct personal experience of what Jesus had done in their lives. Second, the early church was permeated in every area of its life by supernatural power. Their praying was supernatural. Their preaching was supernatural. The way they were directed was supernatural. Their attestation was supernatural. And even as I said in closing yesterday, sometimes their transportation was supernatural, like Philip, who was suddenly caught away and opened his eyes to find himself in a different place. It says specifically, the Spirit of the Lord caught him away. In my talk today, I'm going to focus on a third distinctive feature of the first church, and that is, they proclaimed a king and a kingdom. This theme of a king is introduced right at the beginning of the New Testament, but it is one which receives comparatively little emphasis today, and I think that's one major problem of the contemporary church. It's lost a vision of the king and the kingdom. For instance, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read of this that happened in connection with the birth of Jesus. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. This was the first presentation to the political setup of the day of the fact that Jesus had come on the scene. And even though he was born as an infant in the natural way, he came as a king. And the news that the king had come disturbed King Herod and all Jerusalem. I think it's very important we see that the news of the king and the kingdom is disturbing to a lot of people. They don't like it. Basically, you can say, both political and religious people usually tend to protect the status quo. They don't want anything to change too radically. And so the fact that a king had been born into an existing political order which already had a king was very disturbing. Right at the close of the ministry of Jesus, the same theme provoked the same response. That is, it was disturbing. This is the record of Jesus being cross-examined by Pontius Pilate. In John 18, verses 33 through 37, Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, You are the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. I want you to notice that in that simple short answer, Jesus uses the word kingdom three times. Pilate got the message. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And because he would not deny the truth that he was the king, he was crucified. It cost him his life, but it's kingly to bear witness to the truth. The claim of Jesus to be king was rejected by men, but it was supernaturally endorsed by God himself. It was endorsed primarily in two ways. First of all, by resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was the vindication of God that the claims of Jesus were correct. Paul says this concerning Jesus in Romans 1 verses 3 and 4. It's not a complete sentence, but it brings out the point of what I'm saying to you. Regarding God's Son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice it was the resurrection of the dead brought about by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that affirmed and endorsed the claim of Jesus to be the Son of God and proclaimed that God acknowledged him as Lord. Secondly, there was further supernatural endorsement of this claim on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended and filled the early believers and all Jerusalem was set astir. When Peter was asked to account for what had taken place, why this had happened, 
This is part of the answer that he gave in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33. He said, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. I've been pointing out already that the apostles were primarily witnesses and primarily witnesses of the resurrection. And that was the first supernatural endorsement of the claims of Jesus by God. Then he goes on to say, Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The second attestation of the poured out Holy Spirit was the attestation that Jesus had been not merely resurrected but exalted to the right hand of God the Father and the outpoured Holy Spirit which could be seen and heard by all the dwellers in Jerusalem was God's attestation to the claim of Jesus. From that time onwards the king and the kingdom was a continuing theme of the early Christians. For instance, later on, when Paul and some of his fellow ministers of the gospel were in the city of Corinth, some charges were brought against Paul. They tried to arrest him. They went to the house where they thought he was staying, but he wasn't there. They took the men that were in the house and dragged them out in front of the Roman ruler and demanded that they be put on trial. And uh, I want you to notice the accusation that was brought against them. This is what their enemies accused them of, and it's very revealing. Acts 17, verses 6 and 7. When they did not find them, that's Paul and his companions, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. Notice, they were accused of having upset the world. It's a disturbing message. The first time it was presented, it disturbed Herod and Jerusalem. Every time we return to this theme, to some people, it's disturbing. They went on with their accusation. Jason, this man they were accusing, has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, the emperor, saying that there is another king, Jesus. See, that's the root of the message. That's the root of the problem. There's another king. This world has its kings, but there's another king. There's another kingdom. And we are the representatives on this earth of that other kingdom. That's why we're here. You see... They represented to the world of their day an eternal and unshakable kingdom. This is a kingdom about which a great deal is said in the book of Psalms, the kingdom of God, his eternal, heavenly, unshakable kingdom. I want to read just two passages from the book of Psalms which describe this kingdom which the early church proclaimed on earth. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. It's a totally authoritative kingdom. Everything is under the authority of this heavenly kingdom. And then in Psalm 145, the psalmist says in verses 10 through 13, All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. In those verses that I've just read, the word kingdom occurs four times, and the word dominion once. The emphasis is on this eternal, heavenly, unshakable, totally authoritative kingdom. The early church, where its messengers, its heralds, 
its representatives on earth, and wherever they came with this message, they frightened the existing political order. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, in Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So again, the testimony is this, the kingdom that we represent, the kingdom which we have been incorporated into, the kingdom which is coming through us upon earth, is a heavenly kingdom, it's an eternal kingdom, it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And in the midst of collapse and disaster and fear, they were unshakable themselves because they represented an unshakable kingdom. I suggest to you that our world needs the same message today, the message of the unshakable kingdom. I've said that in the first church, as described in the New Testament and primarily in the book of Acts, God set a standard and a pattern from which he has never departed. That's why it's so important that we be able to identify what the first church was like, because it's still what God wants his church to be like today. In my previous talks, to help us do this, I've pointed out certain distinctive features which were characteristic of that first church. First of all, they were witnesses to all men. Second, they were permeated in every area of their lives by supernatural power. Third, they proclaimed a king and a kingdom. They were the heralds, the representatives on earth of a kingdom. And almost everywhere they came with this message of a king and a kingdom, they disturbed the existing political order. Today I'm going to point out a fourth distinctive feature, one which follows on very naturally from the third. The members of the first church not merely proclaimed a king, they also looked forward to the imminent return of the king. They were, in a sense, just doing a job that had to be done to prepare the way for his return. But the ultimate aim of the job they were doing was to make sure that he came back. This was for them the ultimate motivation, the ultimate joy, the ultimate purpose of living, to be ready and to have done their task in preparing the way for the return of their king. We find this brought out consistently in Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. I'm going to read three successive passages from that epistle. First of all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul, writing to the Christians there, says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. You see, that was the motive of their service. Why were they winning souls? Why were they ministering to the believers, building them up, seek, seeking to make them the kind of people that God desired them to be because when the Lord Jesus returned, they would be their crown and their joy and their glory in his presence. They were always looking forward to that glorious moment, the return of the King. This was also a continual motivation for holiness in their personal living. In the 
Next chapter of First Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Paul says this, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. See, they had a motivation for being blameless and holy. They knew that in due course the king was going to return. They were going to gather before the king. They were going to present their converts, those whom they had brought to the Lord, to the king. And the king, in turn, was going to present them to his father. So Paul prayed, May the Lord strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes. That was what they were consistently looking forward to. And then again in the next chapter of First Thessalonians, chapter 4, a rather longer passage, verses 13 through 18, Paul is speaking about Christians who had already died before the return of the Lord. He was assuring those believers that they would all be reunited when the Lord returned. And this is how he explains it. He gives what is in a sense a very vivid preview of what will happen. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, that is, who die. But the Bible only speaks of death as falling asleep for those who are believers in Christ. That's Those are the only people for whom death is just falling asleep. They're going to awake on the resurrection morning. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. What a tragic phrase. Those who don't know the Lord have no hope in their death. The book of Proverbs says, The righteous have hope in his death. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Notice, bring with Jesus. They were looking forward to Jesus coming and those believers coming with him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Notice the end to which he is looking is the coming of the Lord. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. That's resolving their fears about not meeting those believers who had already died. After that, after the dead in Christ have arisen from the dead, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the great reunion of all true believers. It's going to be a reunion with the Lord as he comes in the clouds. It's not going to be on the level of earth. It's going to be in the air. And so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So you notice that the final source of encouragement in all their troubles and their persecutions, which were so many ones, our king is coming back. We're all going to meet him. We're all going to be together with him and with one another forever. Now, 1 Thessalonians was an early epistle, but the same emphasis continues to the last verses of the last book of the New Testament. That's the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Jesus himself, closing the revelation, says, 
He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus Christ, says, Yes, I am coming soon. And then the writer replies, Amen, come Lord Jesus. That's the last prayer in the Bible. And it's a prayer for Jesus to come. So all through the message of the New Testament church, there's this emphasis on the return of the King. Because of their continuing emphasis on the return of the King, the early church influenced their society with a new viewpoint. They pointed the way to a higher plane and a future age. They said, in effect, this earth isn't ultimate, this age isn't the last. There's something coming in the future, and we're expecting it imminently. It's coming from a heavenly level. It's a new age, and it's going to be a whole lot better than the present one. Now, people sometimes today dismiss that with the phrase, pie in the sky. But you see, it was not so for the early church, because this kingdom that they were proclaiming, and this king whose coming they were awaiting, had already become a reality in their present experience. And wherever they went, they brought with them the testimony and the power of this kingdom, which was extremely potent and extremely disturbing to many of their contemporaries. This was all the result of the supernatural seal of the Holy Spirit upon them. Of this supernatural seal, Paul speaks in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And he says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the truth, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like a seal placed on a registered parcel that sets it aside and declares it's not to be tampered with. Then he goes on to say, The Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let me say a little about that word deposit. It's a fascinating word. In Greek, it's arabon. In Hebrew, it's arabon. In Arabic, it's arbon. And it's also found in other languages. Now, you might wonder what that means. Let me illustrate with just a little incident. Many years ago, when I lived in Jerusalem, I wanted to buy drapes for a house we'd moved into. I went to a little stall in, a, in the old city market, I picked out some material with my wife that we thought was suitable. We inquired the price, and let us say it was $5 a yard. That's just an estimate. We needed 20 yards, so it was going to cost $100. I said, that's what we want. I want you to set aside that 20 yards. Don't sell it to anybody else. And I'm giving you now $20 as a deposit. That word in Arabic, deposit, arbon. That meant... This is set aside for me. I'm coming back to claim it. You can't sell it to anybody else. When I come back, I'll come with the rest of the money. Well, the Holy Spirit's seal on us as Christians, this supernatural seal, is God's deposit on us. It means he's paid that much already. He's set us aside. We can't be sold to anybody else. And it's the guarantee that he's coming back with the rest of the money to claim us for himself. You see, this is... What the Holy Spirit does, it makes the return of Jesus an absolute, assured guarantee. In my talks this week, we've taken a quick trip back in time to have a look at our spiritual roots. That is, the first church, as described in the New Testament. I've pointed out four distinctive features which were characteristic of that first church. 
First, they were witnesses to all men. They were not all preachers, but they were all witnesses. They all spoke from personal experience of what Jesus meant to them, what he had done for them. Second, they were permeated by supernatural power in every area of their lives. They're praying, they're preaching. Everything about them was supernatural. Third, they proclaimed a king and a kingdom. They were heralds of a kingdom, an unshakable and eternal kingdom, which they declared was coming to earth. And fourth, they were always expecting the return of the king. And this shaped their lives. It motivated their actions. It gave them a different viewpoint from the people around them. They represented an age to come something that gave them hope for the future. In my closing talk today, I'm going to deal with a very important practical question, which naturally arises out of my previous talks. The question is, how can we experience this kind of Christianity today? I'm going to suggest to you four things which are necessary if we want to enter in to a Christianity of the same kind. And I must tell you that for my part, I do. I am not satisfied with anything less. First of all, we need to recognize that that kind of Christianity is still for today. God has never changed his specifications. He's never withdrawn the ark, the first church, and said it's out of date and now I've got a more up-to-date version. It was right the first time, it was right when it was launched, and it's still better than any of the substitutes which are being offered today. It's still for us today for many reasons. I'll let me give you one primary reason. God doesn't change. It says with him there is no variableness, no shadow of changing. Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, still the same. Hebrews 9.14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the eternal Spirit. He doesn't change with time. So that the great central elements of that New Testament, first church, are still the same today. The second thing that's important and necessary is that you receive personally, individually, the supernatural infilling of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended in person and took up his residence in the collective body of Christ, the church. But we also read, both then and later on through the book of Acts, it was an individual experience for each Christian to present his body individually to the Holy Spirit as a temple. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended and filled the collective area where they were sitting, but each of them was also individually filled with the Holy Spirit. Each of them individually began to speak in a new language given to him by the Holy Spirit. It was never merely a collective experience. It was both collective and individual, and it's the same today, and it's still the will of God for God's people today. Paul states this rather vividly in Ephesians 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And I want to suggest to you that it's foolish 
not to understand what the Lord's will is. That's why he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And the next verse tells us what the Lord's will is. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, in that verse, there are two commandments. The first is negative, the second is positive. The negative commandment is do not get drunk with wine. The great majority of Christians would certainly agree that's still valid today. But it's not the end. The positive commandment is instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Logic demands that that is still equally valid for all Christians today. It's the alternative in a certain sense. Don't get drunk with wine instead give that kind of thing up but instead be filled with the spirit and you remember that when the holy spirit descended on the early church on the day of pentecost and they were all filled they behaved actually like drunk persons so there's a special reason for saying be sure you get drunk with the right spirit i want you to know that there's a heavenly kind of inebriation which is very much in order it's not being drunk with wine absolutely not but there's something corresponding in the spiritual realm which liberates you, which sets you free from human opinions, your own limitations, which gives you boldness, which gives you freedom of speech. And that's what's a commandment, not an option. So the second thing that matters is be filled with the Holy Spirit just the same way as they were filled in the first church. And then the third requirement is make an unreserved personal commitment to the King, to King Jesus. That is absolutely essential. You can have the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, but if you don't make the unreserved commitment, it will never do in your life what God intends. There's a scripture in the book of Psalms that's very vivid to me. Psalm 110 verse 3, and I'm just giving part of it. I'm taking it from the New American Standard Version, the marginal reading. The psalmist is speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ as God's appointed king, and he says to him, Thy people will be freewill offerings in the day of thy army. Thy people will be freewill offerings. It's not thy people will bring freewill offerings, but thy people will be freewill offerings. God doesn't want us to give him something. He wants us to give him ourselves and the army that the Lord is preparing for this final great spiritual conflict that's going to usher in the kingdom is made up of people who are free will offerings. They don't give God their money, their time or their talent. They give God themselves. And that's what's going to be required of you if you're going to be a part of a church that's like the first church. I've said that if you want to enjoy the kind of Christianity they enjoyed in the first church... I've mentioned three things that it's important for you to do. First, recognize it's still for today. Second, receive the supernatural infilling of the Holy Spirit individually, the way they did in the first church. Third, make unreserved personal commitment to the King. Make yourself a free will offering in His army. And then the fourth goes very closely with that, but it's also important. Identify yourself with the coming of his kingdom. You see, that's the great purpose that's being worked out on earth today by God. It's the coming of God's kingdom under King Jesus. But we will never be fully aligned with the purposes of God until we make that our individual priority.
Jesus taught his disciples in what we call the Lord's Prayer to pray this way. In Matthew 6.10 he said, Pray like this to God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you're ever going to be fully lined up with the will of God on earth, you have to start by saying, Thy kingdom come. And that's not just an empty form of words. That means, God, here I am. The coming of your kingdom becomes my number one priority in my life from now on. Whatever it takes in my life to promote the coming of your kingdom, that's what you can count on me to do. It's an identifying of yourself with the supreme and ultimate purpose of God for this earth and for this age the coming of God's kingdom. Now, as I've been speaking on this theme this week, I trust that the Holy Spirit has touched your heart. I trust that somehow you've got a vision of something that excited you and that you got this impression that somehow God wanted you much more involved than you have been until now. And so as I come to the close of this final message of this week on the first church, I want to close with a personal challenge to you. If you've been listening, the Holy Spirit has been dealing with you, if your heart has been touched, and you've begun to vibrate inside with a realization and a vision that's much more, and you're not satisfied where you are, I want to invite you right now, wherever you are, make a commitment. Make yourself a free will offering in that army. And by a decision of your will, identify yourself with the supreme purpose of God at this hour, the coming of God's kingdom. Say, God, thy kingdom come, and you can count on me to do my part. And then if you've made a commitment like that, let me know, and we'll make it our business here to pray for you in a very special way. For more information about Derek Prince or Derek Prince Ministries, visit us online at DerekPrince.org.